We're going to be in two passages today, so if you have your Bibles, um, if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 15 there, and once you get there, I'll give you a second. Once you get there, um, put a marker in it, and then flip on over to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So, Matthew 28 is uh, well, the last book in Matt, last chapter in Matthew, and this section um, is the Great Commission. So I'll read it, and then we'll go from there. Uh, Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you." And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So when we read this passage, um, some people, well, actually, Pastor John, John Paternoster and I, we've talked about this in our deacon um, discipleship group when we were meeting, we were reading the book Radical by David Platt, would highly recommend to anybody. Um, and we were talking about, well, is the Great Commission something that we all have to do? Is this for us? Are we all called to leave our homes, to go overseas somewhere, to to, you know, become missionaries? And I think the answer is kind of a yes and kind of a no. So not everyone's called to get up and leave Battle Creek or leave Kalamazoo or wherever you're from and go over to Africa or Asia or anywhere else. Like, we're not all called to that. But we are all called to be missionaries. We all have a mission field. If you have a family member who doesn't know Jesus, you have a mission field. If you have friends who don't know Jesus, you have a mission field. If you go to a job and there are people there who don't know Jesus, guess what? You have a mission field. So this is kind of for all of us. And, and when I read it, all the words make sense. I understand what it means to make disciples of, of people, to baptize them, and to teach them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. Those words make sense in my head. But then I'm left, and I'm like, okay, but like, how do I do that? And I think back to a time when... Uh, so I was in college, and I had this horrible car. It was a 2001 Ford Taurus, and we called it Taurosaurus Rex, emphasis on Rex. Um, and it would fall apart all the time, and I, I remember taking it into a place, and they're like, well, you need new brakes. And I thought, well, I cannot afford new brakes because the brakes cost as much as my textbooks, and that seems more important right now. So how did I fix my own brakes? Well, I went and I uh, went to that great sage and keeper of all wisdom, YouTube, and watched a bajillion videos of people changing the brakes on the Ford Taurus, and then went to my dad's garage and made a huge mess of his garage. He's here. He can attest to it. Left all kinds of rust all over and just messed it all up, but I changed my own brakes. And I did that because I watched people who had already done it and learned from what they had already done. And so that's what we're going to be doing with the rest of my little sermon here, um, is we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 10, which, if your Bible has the same headings as mine, mine says the commissioning of the 12. Yours might say the summoning of the 12 or something like that. Um, I like the word summoning because it makes me think of wizards and, and things like that. I think it's cool. Um, but the context of this chapter is uh, the disciples are with Jesus after he's been traveling all over, doing miracles, healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons, all these things that, you know, if you saw it, your jaw would hit the floor. You'd be super impressed. And he's going to be telling the disciples, hey, now it's your turn. And so I think that we can look at this to the commission that the disciples already did. I mean, spoiler alert, they're all dead. Um, they were, most of them martyred. They, they went to their graves doing the things that Jesus told them to do. 
And so I think we could count them as successful in their commission. And so we can look at that and see how we can apply that to our commission. So um, let me get a drink first. And then I'll read through the whole passage. And then we'll just take it apart verse by verse or groups of verses and see what we can pull from that. All right. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 through 15. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them the instructions, don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons, freely you received, freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the worker is worthy of his food. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it, and if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave this, that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. All right, so there's a lot in there. So let's kind of break it up. So in verse 1, we see um, that's when Jesus is summoning them. He calls the disciples together. And he's giving them authority. And we can ask, well, what's he giving them authority to do? Um, he's not giving them, like, institutional leadership. He's not making them the leaders of a church. Um, he's giving them the power to do all the things that he's just been doing, um, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. And uh, um, my, my question when I thought was, okay, you know, this is a, maybe a basic Sunday school question that I missed at some point, but I thought, well, why 12 disciples? And through the mountain of commentaries that Pastor Preston and Pastor John gave me, I, I picked up, well, there are 12 tribes of, of Israel, obviously, and they were the chosen people of God. And the disciples are kind of the restart of that. They're going to be the new patriarchs of the, of the new covenant, of the new people that are chosen by God, all the people that will trust in Jesus. Um, but I think the most important part, not the most important part, but an important part of this whole passage comes in not this passage. Ooh, see what I did there? Um, it's going to be in the verse right before this passage starts. So, sorry I lied to you. We're also going to be in chapter 9, verse 38, um, when Jesus is telling them, you guys should be praying. Here's what you should pray for. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Um, and this is important because these, the disciples are praying, and they're not just praying to pray. They're praying the will of God because Jesus told them exactly what to pray for. Jesus is giving them his will. He says, I want you to pray for these things. And so what happens after they pray? Well, as we read through the whole thing, and as we'll see later, they end up going. They end up doing the thing that Jesus wanted them to do. Um, they are receptive to the leading of God, to hearing his will, and to taking action. Um, they meant it when they prayed. We, we pray sometimes, or we sing songs that say, like, God, I give you everything I have. I, I, you know, I'll give you my whole life. But sometimes I wonder if we mean it. Well, the disciples really meant it, um, and they ended up going. Uh, so verses 2 through 4 um, it's going to give us the names of the disciples. And we can read this and, and, and we think, man, I don't know. 
you know, I don't know how much we can get from that. It's just a bunch of names. But when I read it, I know when I hear, see the word apostle, which Matthew only uses this one time in his entire book, um, I think like, oh man, apostles like way up here, right? Like there's people in church and then maybe pastors and then a prophet or something. And like apostles are a big deal. And really the word apostle just means one who is sent. And Matthew um, lists them here. And when he does give the names of these people, you know, we think Peter, we think, wow, Jesus told Peter that he was going to build his church on Peter's faith. And we see John and we think, oh, that's the disciple that Jesus loved. Like these are names that I could never measure up to because I don't have enough faith or, you know, I've, I've done too many bad things. Like I couldn't possibly get there. But then we come to Matthew, the tax collector. And I know a lot of people in our society today are not fans of the tax collector. And that was even more so back in the time of the Bible because the tax collectors, their job was, well, to collect taxes. But the way they did it, Rome or whoever would say, listen, uh, you have a quota and you need to get me, I don't know, 100 shekels a day. I have no idea if that's a lot of money, but maybe it was. And anything you collect after that, that's yours to keep. We're not going to pay you, but anything you get on top of the, your quota, that's yours. So you could see that this system would be easily abused, and it was. So people would say, I'm a tax collector, and I'm going to get, you know, I could just take one shekel or one whatever from every person that passes by, and I could meet my quota with 100 people. That wouldn't be hard. Or I could take two, and then I could get 100 and give the state 100, and I'll be rich. And so tax collectors often would, would enrich themselves off of this process. They would prey on the poor and the needy, so people were really not fans because, you know, they don't like, no one likes giving their money to the government, but people like it even less when they know that someone's just stealing it for themselves too. So we can see that tax collector and realize that maybe, you know, we could also be the ones who are sent, that there is a place for us among the people who are sent because, yeah, you could be someone as faithful as Peter. You could be as close to Jesus as John was, but you could also be that tax collector, that person who maybe doesn't belong, that person who's not the best part of society, right? It gives hope for all of us. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus says to them, uh, it says, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is one of those head scratchers for me at first. Um, When I was reading, I was like, why wouldn't you want to go to everyone? Like, the Great Commission that we have says, that we should be going to all nations and telling, Jesus, telling people about Jesus. Um, but Jesus' primary focus here is on the lost sheep of Israel. The Messiah was originally just promised to Israel. They've been waiting for him for hundreds of years. Um, so he's going there first. He's saying, listen, I've been promised to you, so I'm going to you. Um, and this is uh, not a lesson we should be taking from uh, and applying to uh, our Great Commission because our commission, like I said, is not limited um, we're not supposed to be only sharing the gospel with people like us. I, if I did that, I would only be sharing the gospel with uh, um, 30-year-old white dudes who like uh, Christian metal and soccer and chemistry, and that's a really small pool of people. I haven't met very many people like me, <laughs> and I haven't met very many people like Preston or um, my parents or my in-laws. Like, we'd all be sharing it with a really small pool of people. Um, so that's obviously not going to work. So this is a specific thing for the um, apostles, and Jesus is saying, listen, okay, we're going to start here. This is the beginning of everything. So he knows, they know where they're going, who they're going to talk to, um, where they're going to be going, what are they supposed to tell them. In verse 7, Jesus says, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
So what are the Jews waiting for at this point? They're under Roman rule. Um, a lot of them are not fans of this. There will be some rebellions a little while after Jesus um, ascends to heaven. And so they're waiting for this king. So if you were to say the kingdom of God is near, the, the Jewish people at the time would obviously know, okay, well, if there's a kingdom, there's got to be a king. So the Messiah is here now. Um, so he's just, they're just telling him, listen, guys, the Messiah is here. And this is a message they'd heard a ton of times. There are people all over um, at this time who are claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be prophets um, and doing miracles sometimes. And so this was not an uncommon thing. Uh, in verse 8, it gives, he gives them a further commandment. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you received, so freely give. And I don't know about you, but if Jesus told me, um, go and raise people from the dead, I would be like, Jesus. I don't know if you know me, but I cannot do that. I am not able to raise someone from the dead and heal the sick. Like, I can put a Band-Aid on something. That's pretty good. I have the first aid merit badge from Boy Scouts, so I could do maybe a little bit more, but I'm not a doctor. I cannot heal the sick. Um, and leprosy is not something I'm willing to get very close to, so you'll have to find somebody else for that job. But he's telling them these things because, you know, he, all, they're supposed to be telling them the kingdom of God is here, but people have heard that a million times. They're not going to believe you because everyone's saying that now. But if you say the kingdom of God is here, also your Uncle Bob who just died, he's back. Well, now they're going to listen. Now they're going to start to think about it. You say the kingdom of God is near also, that leprosy that you've had for a while, you know that your fingers are falling off and things like that, that's healed. So that's going to stop now. People are going to start to take notice. The, the miracles are a confirmation of the message that they were, were asked to bring. Um, and then he just throws in there, freely received, so freely give. Like I said, there are lots of people roaming around Israel at the time saying, I'm the Messiah, or I know who the Messiah is, but I'll tell you if you pay me, um, or I'll heal you if you pay me. And we, can, we still see this kind of stuff today. You'll see um, ministries that say, sow a seed of faith, give me money, and then you'll reap a benefit. You know, give me money into my ministry and I'll heal you. And you'll see them on TV knocking people over and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, I won't name names, but you know who they are. Um, and, and he's saying, this is another way to set you guys apart from the ministries that are happening now. You're not asking for money. You're healing people, telling them that the king is here, and that's it. You're not asking them for anything. You're not coercing them into anything. You're just presenting the truth. Um, verses 9 and 10 kind of show how serious he was about how urgent this was because he says, um, don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff for the workers worthy of his food. Um, the, the don't acquire gold, that phrase um, in the Greek actually is don't obtain anything. The idea is like don't go out and raise money. Like when we do mission trips or when we do service projects, we'll have spaghetti dinners and we'll do car washes and pop can drives and whatever other kooky fundraising thing we can think of. Um, and Jesus is saying, there's no time for that. Just go now. I'm telling you to leave. You need to go. There's no time for you to bring it, go get a bag of things. Um, they would have these bags, you know, you carry food and water. And in, in Israel, it's hot. Water is an important thing to bring. And he's telling them, you don't need to carry any of that stuff. You don't need extra clothes, which they would use as like a tent if they needed it. You don't need extra sandals, which I would think that maybe some leather sandals might break every now and again when you're climbing around the rocks in Israel. Um, but he's saying, you don't need any of this stuff. And I know if that was me, um, I'm not the lightest packer. Um, 
all my years in Boy Scouts told me you bring an extra of everything. So if you go somewhere, you need for three days, you need three socks plus an extra. You need enough pants for those days plus an extra. You need enough shirts plus an extra. And now having little kids, I mean, if you see us leave, every one of us has a backpack on except for Zeke because, well, Zeke could fit in a backpack, but Jack has his toys. Katie's got the diaper bag full of five changes of clothes, diapers, food. There's snacks for Jack and me if I get too hangry. Um, there's all kinds of stuff in there. And today I have my backpack because I have my laptop and all the other stuff. But um, the idea of not bringing anything on this trip and just going freaked me out. But Jesus is assuring them, he's saying, um, the worker is worthy of his food. If you're doing the task that I've sent you on, I'm going to provide for you. So don't worry about it. Um, come on, computer. It's decided it does not like my Word document now. Great news. Well, I have the same problem you guys had, so here we go. Um, I sent it to myself in my email as a backup plan just in case this would happen, so let me get there. All right, so let's see. All right, so he, he's, tell them, he's told them where they're going, who they're going to talk to, what the message will be, what to bring, and now he's kind of giving them some operational instructions, some how, here's how it's going to look when you go. In verses 11 uh, through 15, he's going to give them that. So verse 11, he says, when you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Um, another time where I, again, scratching my head, like, Jesus, what do you mean who is worthy? Like, I've... I know that the gospel says that we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. So none of us are really worthy of, of this gift that Jesus is giving us. None of us deserve anything. Um, this is one of those things where translating from another language to English can be tricky. Um, and the word really should maybe be um, find, uh, find out who is suitable or willing. And so this willingness is really important because, like I said, Jesus told them, don't bring anything. So what are they supposed to do? Well, they need to rely on other people to supply their needs. And this was part of the Middle Eastern hospitality culture. Um, if, if we were living at this time and I showed up at your house and you didn't know me, I'm just a stranger, and knocked on the door and asked you to take me in for the night, that culture would really pressure you into bringing me in. And not just bringing me in and saying, okay, you can sleep on that couch in the basement, you can sleep on that futon that's uncomfortable. It would be, no, you can come into my house and then you can sleep in my bed um, and I'll give you my really comfy pajamas if they fit. And the snacks I really like, those are yours too. Um, I'm not going to ask to watch anything on TV. Whatever you want to watch on TV, that's great. You want to watch anything? Cool. Um, I'll go over here in the corner and just and wait for you to tell me you need something else. And the hospitality in the Mideast was very much, you put the person, the stranger, the sojourner, the, the foreigner, you elevated them to a place of honor when they came into your home. So Jesus is saying, look for the people who are willing to hear my message and are willing to treat you the way this, that our culture demands you be treated. Um, verse 12 and 13, he says, greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, willing, um, suitable, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. This is another thing that if, thank goodness for commentaries, because so much of this passage is based on culture and what was happening at their time that it doesn't make sense. So this thing about their, your peace being on them, um, the co common greeting at the time was peace to you. And so 
you know, this is like any other greeting. You could just throw it around and not really mean it. Like when I leave a restaurant, I'm like, oh, have a good day. And I'm like, oh, you too. Like I really don't care, honestly, if they have a good day or not. Like, and I'm sure most of you guys don't either. Or sometimes they'll say, like, enjoy your food, and you have that awkward, oh, you too. And then you remember, oh, I'm eating. They're not. It's weird. Um, but they were supposed to mean it. The disciples were called to bring peace to the world. Um, the apostles are called to be peacemakers. They're bringing uh, a peace that goes beyond just, like, you know, I hope your house doesn't burn down. I hope you don't have violence in the world. Um, the gospel is this, that we sin, God has a standard, and we don't meet it. And because we don't meet it, we're separated from God. We are at odds with him. And so God sent Jesus to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to bridge that gap, to bring peace between us and God. And so the disciples here are, are literally bringing peace. They're bringing the message of Jesus and saying, without saying it, but that's what's happening, um, I'm bringing you peace with God. So the peace that I'm bringing to you is not just, I hope you guys are doing good. I hope you have a nice day. I hope everything's going swimmingly. They're, they're literally bringing the spiritual peace, the eternal peace that we can have with God again. Um, so bring peace to those people that accept the message of Jesus. And 14 and 15 um, says, but if anyone is, uh, well, 13 says, if, if they're unworthy, let your peace return to you. Leave. If they don't want it, go away, and that, they won't have that peace that you're offering them. Verses 14 and 15 he says, if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave your house or town, or when you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And again, here we are with another thing. I'm like, what is this with the dust? Like I get Israel is hot and it's dry and it's dusty, probably a lot of places. So I would think there'd be lots of dust to be shaken off all over the place. Um, but this was a custom that the Israelites had when they would leave Israel for any reason. If they came back in, they would stop before they got to the border and they would clean themselves off because God had promised them this land. He'd promised them this place that was supposed to be their holy land, um, their promised land. And so they didn't want to bring any foreign contamination in. So they would literally clean themselves off and be like, okay, the dust from wherever, Syria, is not coming in here because that is not God's dust. I mean, it is, but it's not the people of Israel's dust. We're going to leave that out there and not bring it in. It's just stomping your boots off before you come inside when you've had been clomping around in the mud. It's the same thing. You wouldn't do that to your mother's home, right, Mom? I did all the time, but the Israelites wouldn't have, but I did. Um, so, and then he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're like, what does this have to do with anything? That's Old Testament. That's Genesis. Like, this is long ago. And this is kind of keeping with the discussion of hospitality, like one of the many sins, like, and there, were, there was not one or two, there were a lot of sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, was their deliberate breaking of these hospitality codes and laws. So Lot was in, in Sodom, and the angels come, and he's, he's treating them like he should. He's setting them in a place of honor in his home. They're strangers. He doesn't know they're angels. But the people of the city want to pull them out and abuse them and do all kinds of things um, that were sin. And... Um, yeah, against this class of person that the Old Testament is commanding people of the time to, to welcome in, to care for. So why would it be worse for them than it is for these people who just are hearing a message and saying, well, I'm good. I don't need to hear it. I've heard this before. I've heard this message of a Messiah before. I don't need it. Well, they now have an added weight of responsibility that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have. No one came to them and said, hey, um, the kingdom of God is here. It's happening now. Jesus is here. 
Um, he's the king, the Messiah we've been waiting for. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have that. So in a way, they weren't accountable to, um, they didn't have to respond to that in any way. But the people that Jesus is talking about, they've now heard the message. They've now heard, um, a, I guess, a proto-gospel. A, like the gospel hasn't been finished yet, but they've heard the message that Jesus is here. The king is here now, and you're going to reject him. So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah may have been rejecting Jesus in a way through their actions, but these people in Israel are straight up rejecting Jesus. Like, he's here now in his person, and you're pushing him out. So that's why it would be worse for them. So we read all of this, and it's a great story, and there's some interesting cultural things in there we can learn, but we wonder what can we take and apply to the Great Commission to us. Well, the big difference is, like one I've mentioned before, is that our message is not exclusive to one ethnic group, to one um, group of people. It's for the whole world. Revelation 7 says that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be standing before the throne worshiping Jesus um, in heaven. So we don't have to worry about just telling it to certain people. We should be telling it to everyone. Um, We also have the whole story. We know not just that the kingdom came and that the king was here. We know what the king did. We know that he came and took our sin and died on the cross, and then three days later he rose, and then he ascended into heaven. We know all this stuff. We have it. It's all here. Um, And we are also, thankfully, not tasked primarily with raising the dead, casting out demons, or healing people. Um, Jesus may call us to do something like that, um, but thank goodness that we are not, that's not our main job, because, again, I don't think I could do that. (laughs) Um, We are tasked with telling people about Jesus, helping them to love him, and baptizing them. So, I think the three biggest lessons here are, one, pray. Before the disciples went out and were doing these things, they were praying. If we're not speaking with God, how can we possibly know what he wants us to do? And the smart Alex Sunday School answer is, well, the Bible. Yes, the Bible. Um, the Bible gives us a good foundation. It gives us good broad themes. It gives us, you know, a lot about the character of God. But without the personal communion of God of Bible plus prayer, we're not going to be able to talk to him. Like, I can sit next to my wife on the couch, and I could look at her social media feeds, and I could learn a lot about her, but I would not know that she, like, wants me to get her a glass of water or wants me to feed the cats or the baby's crying and she wants me to do it, uh, change the diaper instead of the other way. Like, I'm not going to know that unless I'm talking to her. I can know all the things about her, but if I'm not talking to her, I, I can't know what she wants. And the same is true with God. If we don't talk to him, how will we ever know what he wants us to do? Um, lesson number two is Jesus commanded the disciples to do these miracles not because they could do it on their own, but because he had empowered them to do it. He had given them the authority in the first verse to do all of these things. So when we think for our commission, like, I can't share the gospel with my friends because it's hard, or I don't know what to say, or it might be awkward. I can't go down to the haven because I'm uncomfortable there. I can't go to Verona and work with the kids because I don't really like kids. Um, We can... We can say all those things, but Jesus, if he's calling you to do these things, he's empowering you to do those things. Um, the disciples had Jesus, which was great. And, but Jesus said that it was going to be for our benefit that he goes away and that he sends the Holy Spirit, which that's, the Holy Spirit's still here now to empower us to do all these things. Um, so if he's commanding us to do these things, he's going to empower us to do them too. And finally, um, the apostles we can look at as a model of true dependence. Um, they went traveling with nothing, no food or water or shelter, in the Israel, like through the desert, like there's no highways with rest stops and, and hotels. Inns were around, but there weren't that many of them, which is why the culture would bring people into their home. Um, 
Obviously, there weren't, there weren't that many because we know the Christmas story, and when Jesus and, or Joseph and Mary were going to have Jesus, they went to the inn. There's no one there. There's no room. They couldn't just go down the road to the next inn. I'll go to the Hampton Inn. No, the Holiday Inn. No, whatever. There was a few of them, and there are not that many rooms. So they were depending on God's provision through other people, but God's provision for everything, for their, not just their basic needs, which are important, but also the, the power to do the things he called them to do. Um, I saw a quote on Twitter a while ago. I don't remember who it's from. I would attribute it to somebody, but I don't remember who said it. And they said, we always ask God to provide enough that we no longer need to depend on him. We always ask God to provide enough that we no longer need to depend on him. And it's that idea that, like, the disciples could have said, God, could you just, Jesus, can you just, like, give us enough food for this whole trip? Then they don't have to depend on him. We're, we're going to depend on him just for this one time. Give me enough food. I'll take it. And then I'm done depending because I have it now, right? Like, God, can you just pay this bill this month um, and then enough money for the rest of the month so I don't have to worry about my money anymore? When Jesus is calling the disciples here to depend on him every single day, like they don't have food for the next day if they get it one day. They don't have a place to stay necessarily for the next day if they had it that day. And I just wonder if we do this a lot. Like um, we may say, you know, I don't, um, I, I don't want to help at Verona School because I'm not good with kids. So um, God, unless you can make me really good with kids for the rest of my life, like I guess I can't do it. Instead of saying, God, I'm not I'm not comfortable with that situation, so if you could give me the patience, if that's what you need, to deal with wild kids for a day, or um, if you could just give me, um, you know, make me out, help me be outgoing to those kids for just that three hours, and that'll be okay. And then next time we do it, God, I need that again. I need you to provide again. Uh, God, I'm uncomfortable at the haven. Give me courage to go in there and, and minister to those people. Not for always, just for right now, and then we'll do it again next time. Um, I think we do that a lot. So as we think about the direction of our church and our focus on outreach, I think we can apply these lessons to what we want to do. So please be praying for workers for the harvest. We, we have a great opportunity to make an impact in our community, and we just need people. So guys, you like football? Preston, Pastor Preston mentioned it. Um, any, anyone likes to help out with kids or feel called to do it, please be praying. Um, be willing to be used, knowing that he will empower you for his tasks. Disciples couldn't raise the dead on their own. I'm positive about that. I am, that's, I'm not sure about a lot. I am 100% sure that they could not raise the dead on their own. Um, so you may not feel called to, or equipped to do something, but if you feel called to do it, he'll equip you to do it. And finally, trust that he's going to provide for us in all areas of our ministry, not just in the people, but also in maybe we need some supplies. And I know sometimes budgets are tight and everything, but God can, can supply all these things. So Please be thinking about that, be praying about that as we move forward as a church and try and really impact our community for the gospel.